welcome everybody welcome back to episode three of pk's place i'm joined by a very special guest it is producer life coach alianka larianov alianka how are you doing today i'm good thanks for having me on i'm excited because i have no idea what we're going to be talking about so yeah of course i appreciate you coming on we're going to be talking about a variety of subjects so first uh first thing i wanted to ask is how do you feel about the comparisons between you and environmentalist legend Greta Thunberg. <laughs> um, I mean, I'm honored, I guess, for a backstory. My, my brother has many nicknames for me, and, and one of them is Greta, um, because I, I care about environmental issues, and I sort of care about humanity at large. Um, so I'm, I'm honored that he puts me in the same category and I'm Greta Jr. in his uh, point of view, but um, the fact that he makes fun of me, uh, I think even on social media, sometimes friends will be like, he says the, such mean things to you. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, but this is just the way that he jokes around. So um, long answer short, I find it, um, I, I take it as a compliment. Of course, what are some of those other nicknames then? that he calls you boomer <laughs> all the time anything that i say that is like uh, something recently he goes oh yeah they they love a stan and i go what's a stan and he goes oh i just i can't with you you're such a boomer <laughs> and i was like i don't know what it means so he sends me a screen grab of the definition urban dictionary of what a stan is apparently this is a term that people use um basically anything I say or do he considers that I'm a boomer um otherwise there's a group chat between my sister and my brother and I'm constantly my face is just planted on memes everywhere there was this conversation that I had about quantum physics and sort of time travel and how space is non-linear and time is non-linear and so you can mm -hmm. sort of dictate your existence in some facets um and my sister immediately created a meme where she planted my face into the poster of tenet as if like i'm the one who's time traveling through things so there are just too many nicknames to name no i got you now with the time travel honestly i think the opportunity that was missed was if i was thinking of it i would have planted your face on scott lang because he was <laughs> Yeah, Scott. Oh, if you don't know Scott Lang, that's uh, Paul Rudd in the Marvel, the Marvel Cinematic Universe oh, as Ant-Man. So in the last um, Avengers movie, he he's brought into the talk to Steve Rogers, to Chris Evans and Scarlett Johansson. And he goes, have, I, have either of you studied quantum physics? And they're and she's like, no, only mid-conversation. So then he explains like that he's been in this place called the quantum realm. And he goes, yeah. what if we could enter at one point in time and exit another point in Chris Evans goes, are you talking about a time machine? Like, and he's like, no, I'm not. Oh yeah. I'm talking about a time machine, <laughs> but that's like, that's just how my brain works. But well, if you want to create this meme, you're more than welcome. And then <laughs> share it to my brother and they'll just add it to the collection. Trust me. I will. I've act, uh, without saying too much, I've created a meme of him from that same movie. So, oh, okay. So that'll be shown later, but, but yeah, so speak, <laughs> so speaking of tenant, have you had the chance to see it? And if so, what did you think? Yeah, I saw it last summer, I guess it was out. Um, listen, I mean, it's a Christopher Nolan film and it's very much Christopher Nolan. So it's, 
I, to me, it felt sort of like a compilation of all of his films and all of his narratives into one. Um, and so it was, it was a little bit sort of um, grandiose in his, in his uh, portrayal of his abilities and understanding of, of a world that perhaps many of us haven't really scratched the surface on. Um, but it's entertaining. I mean, it's a good film to watch. It's confusing if you don't sort of know the concept. Um, but in terms of watching it in a theater, it's great because the sound effects are sort of, and, and the, um, the score for the film, it plays to like adding to your senses. So as you're watching, you have anxiety or mm. whatever it is, you know? Um, so it's a good film, but I don't know that it's one of my favorites. Yeah, I, it's not one of my favorite Nolan movies. Now, a quick theater-going story. I saw it on a Friday night, and there was no audio for the first scene. Those who've listened, those who have listened to the episode with Igor, which which will be out by now, I, it was ridiculous. I couldn't hear the first scene, and I went and complained. I got a free pass, and then the audio turned on the rest of the movie. But I that's never happened to me before. It was ridiculous. Hmm. Wonder why that happened? Just a technical glitch? Yeah, it was a technical glitch with that auditorium, but I ended up seeing it on that Sunday and I enjoyed it. But yeah, the movie is very confusing. You have to watch it a few times to really grasp what's happening. But like I said with uh, Igor, I, I think John David Washington is very good. And obviously, our pats, Robert Pattinson steals the show, in my opinion. Our pats. <laughs> you guys He's have great. nicknames for everyone. Yeah, for. Uh, <laughs> Absolutely. He's, um, he's very good. And so I remember when you did an interview with Igor, you mentioned you weren't the big Christopher Nolan fan. I was kind of wondering what, what was the start of that or what led to that being, being the conclusion? Um, I just, I prefer sort of uh, different directors, I guess. I, I prefer, prefer different types of films. I think in the realm that he's in, he's probably one of the best. Um, I think his Batmans are incredible. Mm -hmm. um, and it's a testament sort of to the performance that, you know, the performances that those actors um, portrayed. And I think the way that he, I mean, he has a style, you know, as do most directors, he has a very particular style. Um, he's just not the first director that I would go see um if if his film came out um so i can i appreciate his work but it, again it's not it's just not my top choice um i'm more of a i guess he does have a lot of language in his film but i i i really love dialogue and i sort of i like slowness i like sort of in a film to be able to slow down time and as much as his films are a lot about time um it's so sort of it still is on the brink of being a blockbuster, which they are. Um, and I, I have this sort of repulsion against blockbuster films, which is why when you name these Marvel characters, I have no idea who they are. That's and I know good. it's ignorant for me to say that I don't watch these films, but I don't, I make a choice not to watch these films. Um, and I understand that that's sort of like a elitist mentality, but that's just, that's the, in the one way where I, I just have very clear cut borders in the films that I watch, so. No, I understand that. And I would say, yeah, there are certain Nolan films where there isn't as much dialogue or as much character work. Like I would more say Dunkirk is one of those films that he has where there's not a lot of character work. Really? See, 
I find in Dunkirk actually, actually, I would say that that was one of the best um, sort of exposés in character development because there was lack of dialogue and because there was lack of backstory. And I, and to me, that is, that is a more difficult film to make. And that is a more difficult watch because then as a viewer, it's your responsibility. You know, I like, I like in general in life, I think sort of what is missing in our generation is this emphasis on responsibility. You know, we're sort of this culture of instant gratification. So we just want things handed to us and we want them to be completely explained. Um, and therefore we lack sort of this curiosity and this desire to do a bit of digging and research and to sit with our thoughts, even if they may be, you know, uncomfortable to come up with our own sort of designs and narratives and um, beliefs. And so Dunkirk to me is, is actually wonderful because I mean, it's shot brilliantly one, but two, um, you can't help but actually feel very connected to these characters, even though you don't know very much about them at all. And that is, that is much more difficult to portray. And, and so I would disagree with you on this, but you know, we're allowed to disagree. Of course, I, I was mainly just saying in the fact that you don't have the typical, it's not like Saving Private Ryan where you have yeah that talk that's kind of what i was getting at I, but, but the films like this exist you know like films like this exist. it's like sort of the the war genre is you know that or, or sort of films about boxing legends like all of the films about superheroes like these genres have been done over and over and over again and sort of the lazy man's work is to just repeat the algorithm that already exists and and it's much more difficult to create a product that is a completely different shift or take or look on it and so that's why i feel dunkirk to me is something that is different in a genre that is very heavily saturated um, and would have been an easy thing for him to just let's make a you know a film on war and, and here's how it, it goes so for that i definitely praise his work yeah, of course. I think in the hands of a lesser director, I think this film would have not would have been very boring. It would have not worked. But because of the way he filmed it and, of course, how it's edited with time, as we say, with the mole on land and on sea, it keeps you on your toes that way. And Obviously, it requires a few viewings to keep it all on track, keep it all on, keep on top of things. But yeah, I think I obviously I really liked it. Obviously, I thought it was very entertaining. And yeah, he, he does play with time very well. So, so I do agree with that, but yeah, it's like, it's better than just kind of cookie cutter storytelling. So he does, he does do a good job of that. And, and, and yeah, I think, I think it's very well made too. Cool. We agree then. Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, I, I did see, I do obviously see where you're coming from, especially from that aspect. And I do think it would have bogged the film down a little bit, if, and I'm just saying that mainly because I don't know any of the characters' names, but that's kind of how it would be in war. Like, soldiers aren't all the time going to be like, hey, like, what's your mom's name? Or, you know, like, they're not going to look to their, look to their right or left and ask them these menial questions. It's almost like this is, this is my coworker and we're here to do a job. So it's not like you're going to. But, but the thing is, see, this is the thing about 
like sometimes in life you don't need to know these things yeah i'm taking it out of the context of film in general i think in life you know again we want to know everything about everyone you know as much detail as possible in the ways that and to use this word because everybody uses it but we we sort of stock profiles and online personalities before we meet people or after we meet people because it's a it's it's an obsession of control it's wanting to control an outcome so that you know when you do engage with xyz you sort of are prepared with ammunition versus just relaxing and going with the flow and working off of intuition and emotional intelligence and so i would ask you know well why does one need to know so much you know why does one need to have things clarified for them why does one need to um step in sort of prepared i mean preparation is key for a lot of things but i think in human interaction you know where is the element of surprise or where is the element of surrendering control um so anyways this is a whole ongoing like no you're good you're good i think also what you're saying is i think it's like our the generation nowadays or the like my generation we expect to be spoon-fed so much and i i respect that christopher nolan isn't a director who will spoon feed answers like in dunkirk like in tenant and even inception you're not going to get spoon-fed these answers you have to think about things and especially like the inception, the ending where you see the top spinning and you see it maybe wobble and then it cuts to black. That's what not then he's saying you come to your own conclusion on what happens. Whereas you have to do a little thinking where some people are like, no, like just give give me the answer. Yeah, but that is film. You know, if you study mm-hmm. film history and if you watch the greats like an Andre Tarkovsky, who is the king of creating pause and who is the king of ending without you know a cookie cutter sort of you know bow on on the finale of the film that that is sort of the mirror of life and existence you know i think sort of the greatest tragedy is when you are around someone who says i know you know when when they they so confidently say i know this the truth of the matter is that we don't really know anything and things that we do feel that we know that means we've reached a sort of a certain level after which we transcend to a place of not knowing again and so we have to it's constantly sort of there's 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 sort of like a humility around this idea that or there needs to be about you know around this idea that i don't know i to me when i hear someone say i don't know that's infinitely more attractive and interesting than when someone sits and lectures you know in in any sphere whether that's a classroom whether that's um at work whether that's in a relationship whether that's with your parents you know these sort of authority figures who say that they know they may be well educated but but one should always allow for the space of not knowing because in there is where we actually receive a lot of the answers that we're looking for of course and yeah i think some people do obviously say they're just like i know because they don't want to look foolish that they don't know that information but sometimes it's better to even sit back and let someone explains so then 
then you kind of learn it turns on the light bulb in your head. You're like, ah, like I learned something because as cliche as it is, you learn something new every day. So you never know what someone is presenting you with. And, and yeah, I think anything to obviously come across as less of a know-it-all because no one likes a know-it-all. Yeah. I mean, one of my favorite things that Heath Ledger said, I remember writing this down when I was a little girl, um, was you learn the most about someone in their pauses you know, and I think it's true in film as well, where I think Joaquin Phoenix is one of the greatest sort of pause actors, because if you, if you watch him, a lot of his work is not a lot, his work is not about dialogue. A lot of his work is sort of sounds, like he makes like gurgling sounds a lot. Yeah. And then also, it's just a lot of just pause, or, or Philip Seymour Hoffman did a lot of these like incredible pauses and and I think also sort of in in a conflict situation so for example um, one of the ways that I've been able to heal a lot of the relationships in my life is because of sort of my background and the way that I was raised and and sort of my um, my history but in general, we're taught to go on the defense, you know, just to sort of, if someone says something to you, defend your position, stand your ground, you know, don't let somebody topple you over. And I always, I, I sort of carried that within my life for, for very many years, you know, very aggressive to, to not have somebody sort of make me feel like a doormat, you know. But the truth of the matter is that, A, nobody can make you feel like a doormat if you yourself do not see yourself as that. And the second part of it is there's so much power in disarming someone and disarming someone not in the confrontation of the situation, but in the sitting back and observing because when you create observation, you create pause. And when the person who is sort of instigating doesn't receive the, that energy back, they don't know what to do. So all of a sudden you're just able to sort of observe that this powerful instigator who is trying to push your buttons um, isn't that powerful at all. Um, and sort of this philosophy has helped me A, to heal relationships within my family, it's helped me in my romantic relationships and definitely um, just working with people, you know, to just allow people to observe. And then, and then in some ways to ask, you know, what do you feel? But I feel like, and you can tell me how you think about this, but I think this question, what do you feel is terrifying for a lot of people to hear and even more terrifying to answer, don't you think? I, yeah, I agree. I think there are certain people that have a hard time articulating their thoughts and not even, and not just that. It's also, I feel like they, they don't feel like obviously sharing their feelings or they feel like, oh, no one's going to care about my feelings. So they're just going to keep it inside of you. And, and that's obviously, as you know, not healthy as it builds and builds. And then there's a, blo- there's a boiling point and that's where, that's how fights start. And I, yeah, I think that it's healthier, obviously to not even just like jot your feelings down but if you can have someone to talk to and even blow off a little steam I think it helps uh, long term especially mental health wise yeah I mean uh, you know this idea that 
I like that you said the phrase blowing off steam, but it sort of, um, it sort of hints that, you know, you let it go and it, and it leaves, you know, there's truth to that, but also the idea behind speaking about your feelings is that when you articulate them um, and when you name them and when you share them with someone, um, you're able to sort of shift the perspective of the emotion. So it's no longer, you're no longer, when it's inside of you, it feels like you're underneath it, you know, and it's sort mm -hmm. of like toppling on you. But when you speak it out and or write it down, all of a sudden you're observing it from above. And A, it's not as crushing as it seemed, but B, you're able to sort of create a blueprint of who you are emotionally. And once you understand your emotional blueprint, then you can sort of become the person that, that you truly are. And when you become the person that you truly are, you build confidence. And with confidence sort of comes everything else, right? Because you're no longer acting from a space of lack. You're acting from a space of sort of fullness of, of being full. Um, and I think when, you know, when you speak about mental health, mental health in so many ways is steeped in lacking, you know, it's so much of, I'm not good enough. You know, my feelings are too much. I'm not seen, I'm not heard. Um, I'm not lovable, you know, all of these sort of ter terms that we subconsciously add to the foundational building blocks of who we are. And then we just carry all of that stuff with us in life, you know? And so we, we enter into the workplace or we enter, you know, onto a fresh sheet of ice and we might have someone saying to us, you're an amazing hockey player, but inside our fundamental building block is I'm not good enough. And that's what you see a lot of times when I work with athletes, they're super talented and they're getting, you know, they're getting the big contracts and they're playing in the NHL or the KHL. But inside that voice is still there. I'm not good enough. And that's why you see players have slumps, you know, mm -hmm. um, most of the times it's all psychologically based. Um, so that's something I think that's really important, you know, sort of to shift this narrative of from you're weak if you speak about your emotions to actually know you're quite strong for being able to articulate exactly what it is you're feeling because from there uh you can make change and progress absolutely and someone who actually had a really good quote on that was it was robin leonard who's with the vegas golden knights at the nhl awards he won i think it was the vesna or, or it was the or it was like the jennings and he basically said I'm, I may be mentally ill, but I'm not mentally weak. And he's been someone who's been very vocal on the struggles in his life. And just to hear that, it gives a lot of people hope that like, just because you have these things in your head, you're not a weak person mentally. It's just, there's some things obviously you have to work on. Like it's, it's, it's basically like you work on, you work on your body when you work out or things like that. Your brain's a muscle. You got to work out your brain as well. And I remember even listening to an interview with uh, Nate McKinnon on Colorado, mm -hmm. and he's obviously this extremely talented player and early, he had a good first year, but then he didn't have that success that he was hyped up to the next few years. And he ended up seeing a sports psychologist and 
that sports psychologist did a lot of good for him. And obviously now he's, I would say a top five player in the world and the sports psychologist helped kind of reframe his mindset and get his mind right to have success. Did he say what exactly they did or how they reframed his mindset? Um, I'm going to be honest. I, I haven't listened to that. That interview was, I think over two years ago. So I'd have to listen back to it, but he, he mainly, yeah. I mean, he mainly just said that like either he was going into slumps or just things like he was getting frustrated. Things weren't working out that way. And obviously once he made that switch, he felt freer and he felt more, he felt almost more in control of his mind and those negative thoughts don't creep in as much. Yeah. I mean, to me, it sounds like, I think one of the toughest things is, is sort of shooting out to being a, you know, a first overall, second overall, third overall draft pick um, at a very young age. Um, I mean, 18 is very young Mm -hmm. um, and sort of having these expectations, right? So sort of a lot of the times when how we ourselves create pitfalls is by setting these expectations. Um, and then when we don't meet them and sometimes we don't because we're human, um, mm-hmm. it's absolutely crushing. And so then you're sort of chasing this narrative that isn't yours. Um, it can be yours. You know, there's no sort of, you know, I go back sort of to this, the word blueprint, you know, every person has a different, blueprint um and so from mckinnon you know his expectations in his mind of where he needed to be in year one two three um they just weren't being met but if his expectations were long term for example was to be you know an important key player on the team um to stay healthy and fit um to have enjoyment from the game a lot of people forget this that like you know, the goal really is to identify, yes, I have talent and I have work ethic and a little bit of luck, but then to find joy in the act of what you're doing, you know, but joy quickly goes away when your expectations aren't met. And so it's a very tough balance for an athlete because a lot of the times sort of when you listen to coaches and when you, you know, you sort of, even on the walls of the locker room, they have their like mantra that, that they practice for they they use for the year a lot of times it's sort of you know about we must win or you know all together whatever these things are and they're just they're important to have because you sort of want everybody to be on the same page as a team and you want everyone to have sort of a success mentality but everyone's brain is different you know Mm -hmm. and everyone's sort of emotional blueprint is different and so I think, you know, good on him for seeking out help um, and sort of recalibrating his mind to work for him. Um, But for every success story like that, there's hundreds of other athletes who just never take care of themselves in that way, you know? Yeah, 100%. I think, yeah, I think obviously it's worked out for him. And I think even that narrative, of you know your top pick you're supposed to do these things I think especially as of late that's been a thing especially like you see Austin Matthews scores four, four in his four goals his first game now now that's now every first overall pick it's like oh well you didn't have his you know you didn't start off like Matthews did where obviously 
comparison isn't something that's really healthy because you should only strive to be the best version of yourself. Mm-hmm. But, but yeah, it's, but yes, there, there is immense pressure, obviously. And I feel like, I feel like it take everyone's different and they, everyone develops at a different time. So I feel like it's unfair sometimes for, for people to put these time stamps or put these, put these measures in a place where someone might maybe three or four years down the road, they'll become the player they, they were meant to be, but just because they're not in year one or year two, doesn't mean you should press the panic button and start giving up. Yeah. And how hard is that? Right. Because sort of, you're right that the, the new bar is set where Matthews scores four goals. Um, but, but that's Matthews. Why must we all sort of fall in, under the same? And by the way, we don't know what's ahead for Matthews. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, he's, he's high right now, but who knows how the rest of his career and life pan out. So it's, And this goes back to what I was saying earlier about instant gratification. Mm -hmm. You know, we have, we lack the opportunity for pause. We certainly lack patience. You know, we, we lack this sort of, um, I guess we don't create space for be for people to be individuals, you know, and, and I think it just, I think it's, I think it's terrible that that somebody should feel less worthy of a player if they don't shoot out as much as an Austin Matthews does at the beginning of their career. Um, I don't know. I always sort of I always sort of go back to my my dad's narrative because I find it interesting because he always was looked down upon because he was too small, too skinny, you know, too playmaking, didn't really fit the mold, didn't look like a hockey player, didn't act like a hockey player. And the trajectory of his career is, you know, yeah, he was in his early 20s playing for a sensational uh, international team with the Red Army and doing amazing things at Saska, but his transition to the NHL wasn't that easy either, you know, and, and there's sort of, it, it did go in waves in some ways. And, and one could say, well, he could have scored more goals or he could have this, but he wasn't that kind of a player. And that doesn't make him less important than anybody else. Right. And that's sort of mm-hmm. where we lose like the collective mentality that, that has served us quite well from sort of the beginning of time, which is we work best when we have sort of this tribal mentality that everybody in the tribe matters and that everybody contributes in some ways and everybody has different strengths and weaknesses. We shouldn't all just be robots and, and you know, to go back to sports and play exactly as this star plays. Um, so, yeah, hopefully, hopefully there's a bit of sort of I don't know, gentleness, more gentleness around this. Um, Cause too many super talented players never get to see the light of day because they're psychologically crushed before they even have an opportunity to bloom. Absolutely. I, I do like the use of the word blueprint, blueprint, especially with emotion, because it's no, it's, it's similar to obviously if you're going to build a building, you need a blueprint so that you know where each part goes. So obviously 
your, your brain is almost, it's part of the, it's a big part of the blueprint for how you pro how the rest of your, your body is programmed and especially your mind. So I think that's very powerful. And I think the thing, especially back in the day when your dad made that transition to North America to play is at that time, as you know, there weren't that many players, especially from the Soviet union or these other European countries that came over. So I think the one thing that they overlooked was just how, how you have to get used to that new lifestyle and how that adjustment period is. I, yesterday I spoke to a friend of mine, Matei Picaro play who's from the Czech Republic plays in Rochester in the American league. And, and yeah, he was, we were talking about growing up in the Czech Republic and he obviously said it's, it's a huge lifestyle change than it is in North America. So I think that back, especially back then, they didn't really, they didn't really give, didn't really understand that and didn't, you know, say, Hey, he's it's going to take time. He just came over to a new country. Doesn't, doesn't know the language that great and allowing things to take its course. Yeah. I mean, I can speak from personal experience. Um, as a kid, obviously I moved around with my, my family and the transition between different cultures in Canada and then Switzerland and the U S and then being Russian or not being Russian, being American. I mean, I don't know who my, you know, what my identity is, but then also I can speak to from an, as an adult, I mean, at 31 years old, I moved to back to Russia where I, I had language and I had family there and I knew a little bit about my culture and yet that was difficult. I mean, the first six months, I think, you know, once a week I would be crying because I'm like, my mentality is different. I don't understand how Russians are. And so simple things that, that, that you take for granted, like you have to readjust your brain. And so, you know, I think the transition to this day, I mean, you see a lot of Russians come over to North America and it's hard for them to transition mentality, lifestyle, all of these things. Um, and, you know, there's, there's no point in blaming anybody in this situation, but, you know, it would be great if there was a better program sort of set for, I mean, it'd be great if there's a better program set for mental health in general within the sports world. Um, there just isn't at the moment, but I, I totally hear what your friend is saying. I mean, you know, transitioning to Rochester is probably difficult. So, well, funny. So he actually moved to, he played in Michigan. So he moved to Michigan, played minor hockey there and then played in, played in Muskegon where Igor played and mm -hmm. played in the OHL, which is the same league he played in. But yeah, he was just obviously talking about just making that transition. And I think it, it might, and obviously it's a little easier if you, if guys come over and play a few years before playing junior hockey, but but obviously the language with the language gap, obviously anytime there's that involved, it makes it a little more difficult. Yeah, for sure. For sure. So you obviously mentioned the different places that you moved around with your dad, which place was your favorite as you, you rattled off, obviously uh, Vancouver, uh, Switzerland, obviously California, Michigan, where was your favorite spot that he played? I think Detroit just because sort of, that was like the golden era I didn't really understand what it meant to win a Stanley cup in 97 after what was like 50 year drought for the mm -hmm. Detroit Red Wings. Um, but something about it energetically really glued the team and the city together. Um, I just, I remember as a kid going down Woodward Avenue during the parade and, just seeing millions of people 
like not fanaticism, just utter respect and care and, and, and sort of a joint um, celebration because it wasn't just the team who won, it was the city, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think, I think there was something so beautiful about that where to me, the nineties sort of in Detroit are just my favorite years as as a young girl just you know being a a daughter being a student going to school and certainly being a lucky little human who gets to run around the joe lewis arena you know in the underbelly of that incredible barn Mm -hmm. um whilst the the game was going on i mean (laughs) shit what a privilege you know like it's such a now i'm like with such a bizarre thing to be a part of and so cool so Detroit but also I I just have a very close um, connection to it because once my dad retired my family had a home there and then when I went into recovery for my eating disorder I went back to Detroit and spent a lot of time there and sort of built a large community of, of friends and acquaintances and I just love the city i I'm proud of that city. Um, I think that's the one city that I would consider calling home. Um, it's always a pleasure to go back and to just be there. So Detroit, I think definitely is that place. Yeah, of course, obviously your dad was a big part of those, those three cops, especially in O2. How, how jealous of, were you of uh, your little brother being in the O2 cup photo? Not jealous at all because I, at that point I was 15 and this is terrible of me to say, but when we were out on the ice, I, I sort of was like, when is this going to end? Like, I just want to go hang out with my friends. (laughs) (laughs) I just was, I never was that person, but I think, um, what's different between me and my siblings is my brothers in that cup photo. Mm -hmm. I think my sister's in maybe that same year and there's this photo of my dad holding the cup yep. and my and my sister's just like hey <laughs> <laughs> and I'm the only one who just sort of was always in the background I think because I have more when it comes to these things I'm, I'm more like my mom um it's something that maybe is is a weak a weak spot of mine but I feel like it's not about me you know, I didn't do anything. I didn't do anything to deserve to be on the ice. So why do I need to be photographed there? You know, as much as I understand that obviously winning a cup entails really not seeing your father from the start of the season, September till middle of June, basically. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, you make sacrifices as a kid, but they're not by choice and I'm not doing anything out there. So like, why do I need to be part of that? But that's, that's probably more of an insecurity of mine that I need to work on. But yeah, Yeah. but my, my, my siblings are just, they love, (laughs) they, they love the cameras, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. You definitely, you definitely could say that. And speaking of your siblings, what, how close would you say you are to the two, the two of them? Um, they're my best friends. I love my siblings. I, I don't know how I got so lucky. Um, I mean, I got unlucky because they got the, all of the humor genes. 
So they're both so funny and so witty and so charismatic and, and they're just brilliant when they're together. And I'm just the odd, strange one who just doesn't laugh because I don't understand. I have a very poor sense of humor. Um, but they're also just really good people. You know, they're really good people. I think, you know, I love my brother so much because he is, he has such a big heart and he's so kind and he's a great listener and he's such a good friend. Um, and he has this sort of uncanny wisdom um, and sense of observation and, and understanding of the world and curiosity. Um, and my sister, I always say this about her, but she wears her heart on her sleeve and she's gotten in trouble for that so many times, but she's never hardened, you know? So I feel because of, you know, their qualities, I, I'm just so lucky to be in the mix, even if they do make fun of me all the time. Um, they're the best. So we're very close. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. They are the best. They're, they're two very good people. And especially having talking, like obviously talking to your brother every day, he, he, yeah, he does never cease to amaze me with the things he knows. Obviously, like you were talking about, obviously not saying I know and trying to interject or almost to fake it till you make it where you're like, I do know this when you're actually bullshitting and you don't. There have been times where obviously we've been talking about something and he'll tell me something from an, an angle I didn't think of. And I'm like, shit like that's a good it's a good point like yeah. why didn't I why didn't I think of it that way and he, he's done that a lot but yeah he it's just funny the the word choice he uses like when he phrases things it just never ceases to to, to make me laugh it's he just has such good word choice and obviously you, you got a good glimpse of how well they work together when you saw them sing the shallow at his party oh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. My brother's birthday party was quite the epic thing. And, and I, unfortunately, because of COVID, wasn't able to come. But um, they're a dynamic duo. You know, mm. as a producer myself, I'd love to have a camera around them all the time because they're quite entertaining. Um, yeah, they're, they're one of a kind. They sure are. Yeah, they, they, killed, they killed it that night. And we did miss <laughs> you at that party. It was, it was a good time. And like I've, like I've said before, we were all COVID safe. I, don't think I can say that say that enough but but yeah also he Igor did put on his Instagram the Earth Day photos that you took how was that day at the beach and obviously what does Earth Day mean to you uh yeah he recently posted a few photos of of him and I sort of in Malibu Topanga Canyon um area of California but uh this was in January 2021 and it was just as he moved to Los Angeles, um, we were sort of both coming off of very difficult breakups and um, we were each other's band-aids, like helpers. Um, and it was really sort of a beautiful time for us to just talk, like what we said earlier about just speaking, just talking, talking, talking through everything, you know, all the things mm -hmm. that you, you'd feel uncomfortable to say, or you'd think, oh, you know, it's annoying to keep talking about this, but, but we both sort of gave each other the permission to just be. And I think the, the photograph that he posted is, is, is powerful because 
you know, just to swing it back sort of Earth Day and, and, you know, how much we sort of take for granted in that nature exists in sort of the most profound yet simple way in that it respects itself and others. Um, it's quite giving, you know, it gives us so much. Um, and we're so busy trying to accumulate more and more and more that we don't even take the time to stop and take it all in. You know, it doesn't ask very much of us. It asks very little. Um, and because it asks very little, we abuse it. And I don't know, for me, sort of being by the ocean, it's, it's, it's a very bittersweet feeling because I feel immense gratitude, you know, that, that everything just works. You know, it just has mm -hmm. a flow to it. The waves come in and out. We don't dodge it. We don't try to change it. We don't try to manipulate. Um, and I'm so grateful that it exists and that it's there for me when I need it. But sort of the bitterness about it is that when you look from side to side and you see people running around with like plaque clean up after themselves or you know, a little further down by Manhattan Beach, there's just sort of these like pipes, you know, this, this, I don't know what factory exists there, but it, you know, when you, when you sort of see pollution in its tangible form, it's just devastating. Um, so I don't know, I feel, I feel that, and, and also with mental health, I mean, sort of the, the quickest fix, by the way, and I do this all the time for myself, um, when I feel sad or heavy or alone, I immediately go to the woods and, you know, or to a park or wherever it is. I go to a tree, any tree that you can find. And I just put my hand on the stump uh, or on the, the base of the tree. And I just sort of take three breaths and they give you life. They just give you energy. And I doubt many of your friends talk about these things. They don't. <laughs> so like, and I'm like, but it's free therapy. Well, yeah, yeah as you would say, it's literally free oxygen since obviously. Sure, from yeah. the base level, like it's mm -hmm. free everything. But then from the standpoint of it's free therapy, go to any sort of park and just spend time without this thing mm -hmm. and just be. And yeah, I bet you a lot of your friends or acquaintances or what have you, I don't know that many of them would be able to, to handle it, you know? Mm -hmm. No, that's yeah. good. No, that's a good point. Um, obviously, I was going to ask, have you read the, Give, the Giving Tree? Obviously, that was a book that I read growing up. So funny you say this because my friend Emily, who lives in Tel Aviv, um, she studied and now practices Chinese medicine recently, about a week ago, goes, do you know the book, The Giving Tree? And I read it on PDF form and I just started crying. I don't know if you cried as a kid reading it, but it's so sad. Yeah, reading it as a kid was definitely like, oh, like kind of hits you like, wow, like just with the reality of this tree gave that kid everything. And in return, it's almost like the kid just stabbed the tree in the back or at least cut it, cut him down. It's, it is heartbreaking in that sense, but it made me think of what you were, the, what you were saying, especially that so much of the therapy and the, what the tree gives you, I was, I was like, Oh, like I linked it to the giving tree. 
Yeah, it's a it's a beautiful book. If if any of your listeners haven't read it or have read it a long time ago, I suggest reading it now and sort of finding a different perspective about it because it is, by the way, it's a it's a great sort of um, metaphor for relationships, mm-hmm. sort of abusive relationships, um, and how we do become that doormat in a sense. We become that stump where we give, 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 but we don't set any boundaries, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and I think in some ways sort of what we see in climate change right now is sort of the earth setting boundaries. Like, you know, if you keep taking advantage of me, these are the things that will happen. But we're just too, you know, we're too busy. Too stuck in our ways. Yeah, we, you know, we've got more important things to do. We have to, you know, we, we want convenience. And so people don't do anything unless their literal ass is burning. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> so. No, it's, no, it's very true. And I think with, I think another thing that's kind of good that's shifting away from all these fossil fuels that are being burned. And I mentioned this yesterday was electric cars and at least that idea of, like less, less fossil fuels being burned, less CO2 in the atmosphere. And obviously people like Elon Musk, who's done a great job with Tesla, getting that off the ground, but also all these other companies like Audi that are pivoting and like saying, wait a minute, we need to get in on this too, since it's way better for the environment. And I think more and more people should own electric vehicles. I'm someone who wants to own an electric vehicle because another thing also is that you save money on, on paying for those fossil fuels and it's, better for the environment and you also get better mileage too. Peyton, you know, you could make a very, very small, but very, very important change. Um, and that's, that's just less consumption of meat, you know? And I, and I think this is, it's like, it's such a sensitive subject because so many cultures sort of in their, um, in their history sort of, consumption of meat is like a it's a defining sort of um I, part of their identity um and the emissions of 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 sort of housing these these animals slaughtering these animals and packaging these animals which is disgusting right i mean mm-hmm. packaging animals so that they can be shipped to the local grocery stores for us to walk around and pick which piece of meat will serve me best today. Um, And then the rest of it, God knows where that goes or wasted. Um, I understand this thing of, I deserve this. And so I want it, you know, but I always sort of, to the detriment of many of my relationships, ask this question of, you know, what do you want versus what do you need? And there's a difference. You don't need to eat meat every day. You just want to. You know, you don't need to buy that particular car or that whatever. You just want to. And can you be the person to say to yourself, do I want this or do I need this? And I think when you start asking those kinds of questions, then you can become a better consumer. And in general, then you will actually make a change in the world because a lot of times people just say, I can't, I can't change anything. Yes, you can. You, you really can. 
you know, you just have to start doing. Yeah, I feel those people that are like, what change can I make or I can't make a change? I feel like that's very small minded of them. And I think something that people need to take more of the approach of is having what's called a growth mindset to where I can I can learn and I can research and I can do those things. Like like I was sharing, I shared this with Igor. I watched that Seaspiracy documentary on on Netflix. Netflix. And and if you haven't watched that, check it out. It was it was on it was eye-opening for sure, especially all the all the fish that are killed and especially sharks. Like I never under like even as a kid, I never understood why people killed sharks. I was I was a shark fan, like not not just obviously the, the team, but with the, the creature. I think the creature is I think they're majestic. I think they're very, they're very cool, even though obviously they're, they're deadly, but the odds of inter- coming into contact with one is very, very slim, but it's just like, I would see that. And even worse, like seeing all these dolphins killed and all this, it's just sad. It's like, like, what are you doing? Like, what are you doing? So for me, at least it's, it's kind of something where I think I'm going to try to cut down on my fish consumption. And I do like fish, but I feel like it'd be, better to almost even not even almost phase it out but more go with lessen it lessen it and then at a point you can phase it out yeah and i listen at the end of the day you know everything's sort of about balance which is what i was talking about earlier in terms of nature and how it works the 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 circle of life is that you know predators have to prey um because they need to eat so that they don't die. But, but we are doing it in such amounts that it's, it's destroying the balance that is innately for us, you know? Mm-hmm. So I think one is having conversations like this is important. Um, I'm not saying that you, you have to go do this. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying, consider asking yourself, do I want this or do I need this? Just consider, and I get it. Like there are, there are so many things that I want. <laughs> like, yeah. but when I think about it and I'm honest with myself and I look at myself in the mirror, I realize that most things that I'm craving are not what I need. Yeah. I don't really need a lot. We don't really need a lot. And if more of us sort of had that mentality, then we would really be in a better place. Absolutely. And, and even like a personal example for me about wants versus needs, especially when, you know, there's some, I'm looking for something to eat. And even if there's like a, like a dessert or something, it's like, I think, okay, that's there. But then I'm like, do I need it? And a lot of the times, especially not only that, but other junk food, I think I use that and think to myself, do I need it? And when the answer is no, I'm like, all right, then you close the fridge or you just move on. Especially since obviously it's like, if I eat this, it's not going to do me any good. It's not going to help me work out or perform so what's it's almost like it's basically wasted energy then eating. well it, and that's see you can take that to alcohol you can take that to cigarettes you can take that to drugs you can take mm-hmm. that to anything else to to gambling to you know purchases of thing goods online but i think you know people will say but but sometimes i i do need that sweet thing that's fine but you always know when this is the thing I see with my clients all the time, they ask me these questions and they're like, Alianka, can you answer them for me? And my answer is you already know. You already know the truth. You know where you 
sorry, my language, but you know where you fucked up. Mm. You know where you did wrong. You know where you're cheating yourself and others. You know the truth of all the questions that you're asking me. It's just that you don't want to look at yourself, you know? And so when you do, then you do understand the difference between want and need and also need that comes from a space of, of awareness. No, of course. Yeah. It, I, and I think with some people with the truth, the truth hurts. I mean, like on it, like honesty hurts sometimes. And I think that they aren't able to, or they don't want to look themselves in the mirror and be like, you know what? I need to make a change. I messed up. And I yeah, think you know why? You, let's hear it. Because change is scary. Yep. Change yeah. is so scary. Yeah, it, it's not, it, for some people, it's not easy to make those changes until it slaps you in the face and it's too late almost at that point. But I feel like there's, I feel like certain people need to look themselves in the mirror and, and say, hey, this isn't working out. I need to make a change here are the steps I can take. And I think what, like, even like you were saying, like writing it on paper, because the other thing that's valid, I find value with writing is you, it, you not only remember it, but it's there. So it's not like you just like think of it and then it just, you forget it or you file it away in some cabinet in your brain. When you write it down, it's there and you can always it's look real. at it for reference. Yes. It's tangible that you wrote this on a real sheet of paper with a real pen or pencil and it's there. So it, it serves as a reminder. I agree. I'm proud of you for writing. Thank Ooh. you. Yeah. And I, yeah, it's even taking notes for certain people that I want to bring on here, but it, yeah, writing it, it, it's, I think it's key for sure. And so something else interesting I remember is there was a clip, I think I saw it a few years ago of, I remember obviously you've done a few interviews. One of them actually, I didn't realize it was you at the time interviewing these guys, but I remember you were at the NHL awards and you interviewed, I think it was Claude Giroux and Paul Bissonnette. And yeah, it's obviously gone viral, but what was, what was that experience like at the NHL awards? And did it go viral? I don't know about this. No. Okay. So, so the clip, if you haven't familiar with it, it's no, um, I think you, I I guess, so you asked Biz and Giroux like, Oh, what's your pickup line or what do you do to get girls? And Giroux was like, Oh, I don't know. Like he, he didn't really give much of an answer. And, Biz just goes, he's like, oh, well, I pour vodka down their throat and they go from a six to an eight and it's good night, Jim Kite. <laughs> and like, and, th- and this was told, uh, I think it was 2019 All-Star game weekend. They had Drew no. on. Oh, recently. Yeah, this was two years ago. So they had Drew on and Drew was, I think Biz was telling that story because he was with Drew in Vegas at the awards. So they repeated the story again? Uh, two years ago was the first time I heard it. That was the first time I heard it. And yeah, your brother told me it was you. And I was like, what? Because I think in the clip of the video, I I don't see you. I only see those two guys. So I was like, I had no idea. Like my mind was, it was blown. I was like, there is, there is a full interview on, I think it's sauce hockey's YouTube page. Um, I mean, that would never fly now. Oh, absolutely not. This was, I should preface, I think this was like 10 years ago. Yeah. And the things that were said 10 years ago. Like, would never. I mean, the, I will just say this. Um, I don't know how I survived my early 20s working in sports. 
honest to God, because it was the beginning of social media. Mm -hmm. I was the first social media reporter for TSN. Mm -hmm. I would walk in. I remember walking into the Chicago Blackhawks locker room with this, with an official badge that said reporter and their PR guy goes, you can't be here. I go, what do you mean? We'll put your phone away. I go, I'm using this to, to, to make content for TSN's page. And mm. they kicked me out. No way. Yeah, because this wasn't a thing. So the stories, the stories that I have from my be beginning, like just the Twitter stuff that was all of these things. So what that particular interview we had all been out the night before mm -hmm. um, in Las Vegas for the awards. Uh, I was good friends with uh, Henrik Lundqvist. And I, I knew Paul because of the sauce hockey stuff. Um, mm -hmm. And so, you know, the thing about those red carpet interviews is that everyone's hung over. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so, like, so like, your brain's not really working and it's a really terrible format because you have 30 seconds with each person. Mm -hmm. And so you can't really talk about anything. You have to come up yep. with questions that are going to be sort of, you know, and I think our approach at that point, and I had told the guys before, just so you know, like, I'm going to be asking questions that are sort of off the cuff because, because I was bored. Mm -hmm. I was so bored. I was like, I don't want to talk about these. I don't want to talk about any of these things. And also this is such poor journalism. And I'd rather sit down with Paul Bissonnette for an hour and a half and have a conversation like this, you know, like long form interviews, like weren't a thing in sports at the time. No, nobody was doing podcasts. Nobody was doing, you know, any of these things. I think the first segment that like mixed sort of, this like comical sort of exchange with a conversation was my cooking with Gino when we were making, you know, food together in the kitchen. Mm. So I don't know, sports culture, man, like, I, I can't even answer what your question is because I just don't know how I survived that period. Yeah. Really. So I will say there is a, when we get to the question, fan submit a question part later, there's a question about, sports culture that you can dive even deeper on that. But I couldn't, like I said, I couldn't believe that that, that you were interviewing like him and Giroux and especially like hearing him say that I'm like, did you really say that? <laughs> like, yeah, but, but you have to understand, you know, like this is sort of the thing about how quickly culture is changing. Um, locker room talk existed and will exist. Mm -hmm. um there's sort of that bro culture that i don't know that it's okay to shame paul bissonette for saying something like that when in that particular time of of culture it was okay i mean i i grimaced um but i also chuckled because i was part of that culture as well um I don't know that it's a bad question to ask somebody, what's your pickup line? You know, no, not at all. If I were to ask that right now, I think 
a lot of people would say, well, I don't really use it in person. I do it on dating apps. And then, and then that for me in that format, I would ask right on camera, well, open up your Raya or open up your hinge. Let's see some of the texts that you send to people, you know, sort of. Um, but that's what I mean earlier about saying about responsibility and accountability. You know, mm -hmm. I think uh, to this day, I could go through my direct messages on my Instagram or my Twitter and some of the messages that I receive from well-known people, I just look at them and I wonder, how invincible do you think you are? Mm -hmm. It would take me no time to press this button and this button, whichever one it is that you screen grab with. It's, yeah, it's the home button and the top volume button. Boomer. Yep. And, <laughs> and then post it and say, what is this guy doing? Mm-hmm. But, but this, this culture is not just about men. I mean, women also allow for a lot of these things to happen. I mean, this is a much larger conversation for another time. Mm -hmm. Anyways, if you find the video, the long form one with Claude Giroux and Paul Bissonnette, watch it. Um, I will. And just the context, obviously, for that is everyone's hungover. Everyone's tired. No one really wants to be there. Mm -hmm. We don't know what to talk about and you just have to figure out what to say. And I don't have any animosity towards biz for saying what he said. Um, you know, it might not be funny now, but it was funny then. I mean, I, th I do think it's, and I'm not obviously insinuating canceling him or anything. I, I love biz. I think he's, I think he's very, he's a very unique personality and I love how he's not afraid to be who he is. And funny story was his podcast. They did a, live taping it didn't really end up being an episode because the audio was crap but it was in downtown chicago i'm gonna say three years ago on new year's eve because they were going to the winter classic at notre dame in indiana the next day so i went there and i actually got to meet biz whitney and all these guys and yeah he's he's a really good guy i enjoyed talking with him he actually liked the photo that i uploaded with him on my instagram which was very yeah. nice of him but no, I, th yeah, he's, he's funny. I mean, obviously there's things that people make fun of him for, obviously, you know, his, maybe his, how, like how, how his reading level and sometimes how he, how he, he talks. Like I know one time he was saying, speaking of the word articulate, he goes, you got to articulate your art. Oh, <laughs> sweet. And I, was, <laughs> and I was like, huh. I'm like, did you, I'm thinking, did you use that just because the word art wasn't articulate, but no, he's, he's a unique personality. He's a unique personality. He's unique. And I obviously, I, I obviously enjoy listening to him on a weekly basis, but what was it also like uh, going around with uh, Henrik Lundqvist? I mean, when you talk about, especially guys in the hockey world who are, you know, at least as good looking as it gets. I mean, Lundqvist, not only is he a good looking guy, but he's very, very stylish. Um, Hank and I did a, 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 like a long form piece for TSN. Mm -hmm. um, and I spent a day with him in Manhattan he knows this, but I personally don't find him attractive. Um, I, though I understand why others would, he's just, I, I don't see it. Um, but I always, what I like most about Henrik is that he, he's a really nice person. And like, despite the fact that he dresses a certain way and he has that hair and we actually like did a bit for NHL at one point where I was like, how do you, how do you 
create this flow and he's like mm-hmm. what flow and like <laughs> like he has like he has a good sense of humor a, around his style you know mm-hmm. um but i also i, I like that he is super passionate about the game he's super dedicated to his craft um he loved playing for the new york rangers and he loved new york mm-hmm. um and I, I think he's a, a respectable man um, as an athlete. Um, you know, he carries weight behind his brand and the brand of the team that he plays for. Um, so I have nothing but nice things to say. He was always very, very kind, professional um, with me. You know, any ideas that I may have had, it was always a yes, it was never a no. Um, and in that sense too, he's quite creative. You know, he's never going to be a dry person to to interview. Um, but I'll say to you that I think with everybody that I've sat down, um, I've been quite lucky. Um, I remember I had a great conversation with Rick Nash, um, Ryan McDonough, Carl Haglin, Matt Zuccarello. I mean, with the Rangers alone, John Tavares when he was with the Islanders just he was one of the you know with me he he actually spoke he's not really a speaker he's not like, now with with me for some reason he felt comfortable and safe and he was always a great interview for me as well um but I could even transition to my days working with the Brooklyn Nets you know with these basketball guys who oftentimes are quite pompous in their delivery of of their stories the guys I worked with were wonderful. I mean, they were just great. So I think when I was focused sort of, when I found sort of my niche and my calling and the approach to athletes and and how to conduct certain interviews, I had just wonderful experiences. It was more about the player personnel in the teams that gave me a hard time working within um, networks, which was difficult. And then just the fan mail, like the, the hate that I would receive on Twitter. It was like anybody I spoke to, I was obviously sleeping with them. You know, I was obviously a home wrecker. I was obviously, you know, sleeping my way to the top. I mean, it was always like sexualized in so many ways, which I think is unfair. I mean, just because I have fake blonde hair and I have, you know, longer than normal legs, which that, that I hate by the way, and all were also criticized like, it's just a, it's a horrible thing. Like, nobody's looking at Pierre Maguire. Well, no, people are looking at Pierre Maguire, but like, no, <laughs> no one's looking at a James Duffy and saying, you know, he, they're sexualizing the way that he looks. Mm-hmm. Why is it just because what, I'm a girl? Yeah, I think that's the unfortunate part is I think that as, and I, I don't know when this started, but as long as you can go back women have been sexualized and I feel like unfortunately there's a lot of people that are keeping it that way and I do think it's unfortunate especially to undermine someone's credibility because because they're a female I mean I mean even even I think uh Catherine Tappan with NBC I think she's done a, a tremendous job with the role she's been she's been given and what she's done and I, I, I don't know I don't hear any any of those comments but yeah it's 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 terribly unfortunate but yeah Lundquist yeah, Lundquist is, he's obviously a very, seems like a very nice guy. And he also did a sit down kind of like what you did with him, a long form 
I didn't see it, but it was with Kevin, Kevin Weeks, who he played mm-hmm. with at the Rangers. And I heard nothing but good things. It was actually his first interview since he had his heart procedure. And it was, it was kind of tough to see that he wasn't playing. I felt bad for him, but at least he's on the road to recovery. So that's good news there. Yeah, Weeks, he's a good guy as well, by the way. Yeah, I, I enjoy watching him on the NHL Network. He's, he adds another flavor of personality. Now you mentioned the Brooklyn Nets. So what are your, what's your current take on how they're almost becoming another super team or at least no take. No I have take. no idea what's going on. Zero. Oh, you don't. Okay. So I don't follow sports at all. Like any sports story that you, I have no idea what's going in the NHL. I have no idea what's going in the NBA. Um, I just, I avoid sports at all costs. I, it's not something I'm, I'm interested in. Um, unless it's somebody that I know yep. Um, or, you know, if I were to dive back into the world of production, then obviously I'd do my research and, and go all in, Mm. but I just, I don't know if it's sort of the 10 years that I worked in there um, or the 20 before that, where I lived in sports. Yeah. No, thank you. So we can just skip the skip over this question because I won't have an answer for you. (laughs) True. No, it was, yeah, it was just all like, obviously guys they brought in, but what's, and one of them was former Clipper, uh, Blake Griffin, who you got the chance to interview the, probably the only Clippers fan to exist, Larry King at a Brooklyn Nets game. What was, what was that like interviewing the, the legend here? I mean, dream come true because Larry King was sort of a people's interviewer. Mm-hmm. Um, what I loved about him was that he asked the most basic questions like why how what do you mean there was no there was no like you know pre-written questions there was no psychological analysis he just asked what he felt very simply um and so he was brilliant because of that um but again, within the context of where I was, I mean, it was, you know, a pre-match sort of standing on the floor of, of the Brooklyn Nets arena and Larry King walks by and I'm like, oh, can we please? And I have a minute, you know, so you can't really ask the guy anything, but, um, mm. but he's a class act. He was a class act. Um, just, uh, with the suspenders and and the leather jacket. I mean, he's he's one of the, the glasses, best. The glasses too. Yeah, he's one of the best. He's one of the best. Yeah, he. I feel like Larry King was synonymous with interviews, and one that was actually brought to my attention that uh, Whitney and Bissonette brought up was, I guess, he interviewed DJ Khaled, and he basically kind of asked him bluntly, like, "How'd you get so fat?" Or like, "Like, how?" This you... is what I'm saying. Yeah, it was so like, blunt. You know, Larry King had this. It's just it's not it's not blunt. Larry King is just a kid. He asks questions the way that a kid does. Mm-hmm. Excuse me, Mister. How did you get so fat? True. <laughs> you know, like it's not it's not with the sort of what's wrong with you. It's a genuine curiosity. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's how he was with everybody. I mean, I think. Uh, the other interview that I, I love is Howard Stern. Um, yep. And one of the reasons that I, I do love him is because 
you know, he's made a lot of changes in his personal life and has um, apologized many times for the ways that he has spoken about women or other topics, um, which I find, you know, honorable um, because people are allowed to make mistakes and people are allowed to, uh, to change. Um, he's a brilliant interviewer. Um, I always found Charlie Rose to be a brilliant interviewer, but, you know, because of some of the things that he's done, we no longer get to see him. Um, I think now the only interviewers that we really listen to are podcast interviewers. Um, it's few and far between those ones who are actually really good at what they do. Um, well, that's a whole other topic about yep. why everybody thinks that they can interview. Um, it's not just, uh, it's not just, it's not a thing just because you have a microphone and a camera or a recorder, you know, um, it's a very difficult skill to learn. Either you have it or you spend a lot of hours perfecting it. Um, so, okay, let's get to the fan ones. Cause I have to run soon. Yeah, of course. Okay. So yeah, I, once again, thank you for everyone who submitted a question. The first question, I think this is going to be a hard, hard, one of the harder ones. Who's your favorite sibling? <laughs> Did Igor ask this? <laughs> yep. <laughs> no, I can't answer that. There's, there, it's not a competition. There's no favorite. I love them both the same. Next that's a, question. That's Bad a question, answer. Igor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think you should let him know after this interview. I will. I will yeah. send him a no, and then he'll write back, okay, Boomer. <laughs> uh, AOC or Greta? Greta. Yeah, I'd say, I'd say Greta too. So this is uh, another one. Um, we might not, you don't have to touch too deeply on it, but Igor also asked, what are your thoughts on the toxicity in sports culture? In terms of? Uh, I think he was, that's kind of, the question was just the thoughts on it. I think he was more saying more kind of about that kind of toxic masculinity that kind of goes with it, or even like the kind of how they, how they talk or how they treat people. Well, I don't think it's fair to say that max masculinity is toxic. I don't think it's fair to say that sports masculinity is toxic. I think in general, we just have toxicity as humanity, like as, as a, as a, as a group at large. Um, and I think that toxicity stems from fear. Um, toxicity is sort of, what we talked about earlier is that um, instead of either leaning in and gently activating curiosity or leaning back and being an observer, we attack, you know, we, we were on, we're in the defense or the offense in the sense of, of defending our point of view um, or, you know, or sort of, putting somebody down. Um, so I think it, it comes from a lack. It comes from fear because of fear of the unknown, because of um, a fear of asking ourselves, well, why do I think this way? Because when you start asking, why do I think this way? Then you have to sort of ask yourself, why do I think this way on a lot of different things? And when you start doing that, sort of these, these, temples 
that you've created start falling apart. And when things start falling apart, that means that your identity is going to be changing and change is difficult, as we said earlier. You know, I had an interesting conversation with a woman who was doing my nails the other day and we were watching a film in the salon and it was about interracial marriage. And she said, I would, I would kill my daughter if she brought home an African-American. I mean, I'm in Russia, so this is fine. Oh yeah, true. Uh, but I said to her, what do you have against African-Americans? Um, and she said, I just don't like them. And I said, but do you know why? And she goes, well, I don't know why. I go, well, you know why you dislike a certain kind of food that you wouldn't have. Why don't you have an answer for this, especially if it's something that you dislike so much? That's a stupid question, she says to me. You know, but um, here's the thing. In this instance, I could have shut her down, um, meaning shut down the very gentle nudge of perspective that was created by lecturing her and saying, well, here's why you should care about black lives. And here's why this, this, and that. And in some mm. places it does matter and you need to have these conversations. But in a place like this, in a country like Russia, where not everyone is like this, but where, you know, if someone has an opinion like this, um, the only thing that I can do is say, why do you feel this way? Do you know why you feel this way? Um, and then state something from my perspective of, oh, I don't know, for me, I, I would be happy. I, I said something along the lines of love is so rare. True love is so rare. You know, I would be happy for my child to just come home to me and say, I found the person that I love. Um, I understand that is not a um, articulate way of, of engaging somebody and understanding racism and particularly in America. Um, but it's enough in that instance to then have her walk away and remember that moment. Yeah, of course. Yeah, I think, I, I think when someone says, I don't know, honestly, and this is like everyday life for me. I feel they do know the answer because you always know why you like you no, like it's like something. She doesn't know her answer. Her answer. If I were to have broken her down psychologically in that moment, the truth of why she feels that is because she was she's been told to think that, and the truth is she doesn't hate African Americans. Um, you know, she made sort of a slur at Asians as well. She doesn't hate them. Um, she just doesn't know any better, um, meaning she does. She was raised in a culture where from, listen, at, when we're born, we're born like a blank slate. Mm -hmm. And back to the blueprint, um, as a child, we, we soak in everything that, that we know, that we hear. If that's what we hear all the time, then that's what we believe. And that's why I'm saying mm -hmm. that sort of to use this toxic masculinity I mean, it's not toxic masculinity, it's just toxic humanity, you know? And so the toxicity that we acquire um, 
it's not a bad thing that 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 we acquire it it's a bad thing that we keep it and it's a bad thing that we don't ask why we have it mm-hmm. right and so those conversations are not happening no one's really talking about well why do you feel this way or why why did when did you choose to believe this and if you chose to believe it at this point based on whose recommendation and now that you're an older person what do you think about it now you see these are the things that we should be discussing and then the ways that we should be sort of engaging in these conversations but i for one don't see them happening um you know instead we go to the polar opposite and we now have cancel culture or you're just bad for thinking that. Yeah, you make a good point. Yeah, you do make a good point there that if you're raised a certain way, it's almost like you don't you don't know any better because that's all you've known and you really haven't no one's really kind of challenged you, hey, you should you should you should think about changing or going about it this way. And yeah, cancel culture is very I would say like you said toxic humanity, that's another interesting way of looking at it that I didn't think of that it it is very toxic that someone makes one mistake and just like that they're done where it's all, it's almost, they should have a second chance, but then if they mess up on that second chance, then it's like, all right, you know, like that, then, then probably you're done, but it is a very good point of looking at it that way. Yeah. So, I mean, there's, there's no excuse. There's no excuse for carrying that your job as a person in everyday life is to look at this cup and not see it just as a cup, but to understand, well, what is it and why is it and how is it and what is my relationship to it? You know, you also don't want to go like too overboard and just like stay in a hole and like, you know, but but in all aspects, in the, the big things, you know, what is my, for you, for example, what is my relationship to uh, what it means to be a man? You know, what is it? My, what is my relationship to what it means to be a son? What is it my relationship in terms of what it means to be an athlete, to be a friend? All of these things, you know, these are things that you need to be asking yourself and that you need to be shifting and moving so that you can evolve, right? And that you can sort of release the toxicity and sort of the fear that you have around certain, some of these terms so you can have freedom to be who you are. Yeah. You know, that, that is one's job. That is why we're here. But you know, sort of sitting back and saying, well, I was raised like this and I don't know any better. That's not okay. You know, no. but, but that's why on the other end of it. Um, and by the way, uh, you know, that's why I ask questions. I don't teach with this woman. I asked her question. I didn't teach because I've made mistakes too. And I, I can't speak for a black American, because I'm not a black American and I don't know what that's like, you know, Mm -hmm. but, but that's why to me, curiosity without a hint of shame in there is important. It's, you know, it's important. And, and so to answer my brother's question about, you know, it's just, it's, it's toxic humanity. Um, but those who are toxic need the most healing and in my opinion, need the most attention and in my opinion, need the most nurturing um, because they're the ones that are really hurting. Carrying anger and hate is a huge burden. I mean, I get like chills even saying that because it's, it literally eats you alive, you know? So, yeah. Especially hate. Hate's a very strong word as you're taught as a young age and 
those, those emotions do carry weight. But I will say you talking about, obviously asking the questions about what it means to be a man that actually segues into the next question, which is, I'm, I'm interested for this one. How, what are some ways you think men can help make women feel more safe? Um, listen, I think it all comes down to the same thing that I'm saying. So a lot of times with my clients, we talk about this sort of term called holding space, um, holding space for another uh, man, woman, child, doesn't matter. Um, holding space means creating a pocket of time uh, in which one simply listens uh, without judgment, uh, without any predispositions, without uh, uh, the need to make a point, without and 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 and, and creating safety in that um, is that even if the voice inside your head wants to criticize, you know, we push it away. Um, and so when we create a safe space for someone, that means that they are able to be who they are and share parts of themselves to you. And now, so the tricky part after this is then after the safe space is sort of shut, to then not use that information against somebody to make them feel small or belittle them and or to say, you know, you're, you're a bad person because you shared X, Y, Z. Um, so how can a man make women feel more safe? One, creating safe space in any relationship. Two, being genuinely curious in understanding women, you know, what, and, and, and not women as a whole, maybe even that's important too, but the woman in front of you, who is she? Why is she? Um, how is she? Um, and, and finding joy and sort of peering, peeling back in the layers and peering through into her soul. Um, having respect. I mean, it's a fucking human being in front of you. Mm -hmm. Like respect this person. Um, consider that that they are, you know, that they are both fragile and strong. I mean, it's the same way. I don't know how else to say this. It's the same way. Like in in Buddhism, there's this beautiful thing about way that sort of meditation is talked about. Um, that when you hold a a, a a bud like a rosebud, if you press too strongly, the 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 petals will just break and collapse and fall you have to you have to hold hold as firm but you have to be gentle you know and i'm not saying that women are weak in their gentleness i'm saying this sort of holding space and this sort of gentleness is needed for both men and women in the same way that one would would be around a child like turn on the faucet of nurture all right. As always, Elianka, thank you for joining us. It was a fun chat. Where can people find you on social media? Uh, Instagram at underscore Alianka, A-L-Y-O-N-K-A. And then my coaching one is at coach.alianka. I think I have a Twitter that I just don't do anything with. So, oh, and my website, aliankalariana.com. That's where you can find me. Perfect. Now, last question. Who would you like to see me interview on this podcast? Paul Bissonnette.
honestly, if I could, if I could interview Biz, I that would be awesome. I know that would be a lot of fun. He, I, I could, I could see that going very well. That would be, that'd be great. Well, let me see if I can reach out to him and at least make an ask. He might, he might want all your stats and numbers, but maybe he'll say yes. <laughs> True. And it could also be down the road too, but yeah, no, I, I pre- at least the ask uh, is very appreciated. Appreciated. Cool. Obviously, Thanks for having me on. This was really interesting. We can certainly do this again another time. Of course. Yeah. I'd love to have you back on. So you can find my Instagram is p.hughes15 and the podcast Instagram is is PK's Place Podcast. Thanks everyone for listening. Have a great day. Thank you.